All my life's a circle, sunrise and sundown. The moon rolls through the nighttime till the daybreak comes around. All my life's a circle, but I can't tell you why. The season's spinning round again. The years keep rolling by. Those are words of a song called Circle by Harry Chapin. You ever heard it? It's uh, one of those kind of upbeat, very kind of whimsical songs. You, you might listen to it and just find yourself unconsciously smiling because it's so positive. And it imagines life as well a circle. There's no straight lines, no dead ends. You just kind of float through life season by season, attaching whatever meaning you might want to life. It's just circular. Compare that with Another well-known song goes like this. There's a man coming around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated just the same. There'll be a golden ladder hanging down when the man comes around. Those are the words of the immortal Johnny Cash, in the song, When the Man Comes Around. And it's a popular song for some good reasons. Johnny Cash is an amazing musician, amazing songwriter. But I think the reason why that song was so popular is because it resonates with something we all know deep down to be true. Life's not just a circle. It's a journey toward a meeting. A meeting that none of us can avoid. And a meeting that deep down we all we know we need to be prepared for. Christians call that meeting Judgment Day. The day when each one of us as a created person will have to stand before the judge of the universe and give an account for how we've lived our lives. If life's not just a circle, if it's a journey towards a meeting, that leaves a very important question. How will you be ready for that day? What do you do to get ready for Judgment Day? We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount and learning from King Jesus what it is that this kingdom he is bringing to this earth and the citizens of it are going to look like. We've called it life in the kingdom because we are learning from Jesus how citizens of heaven live in this world. We learned along the way that citizens of heaven aren't those that enter with proud heads held high, that In fact, they are those who declare spiritual bankruptcy, those who call on the mercy of Jesus and find him to be all the Savior they need. He showed us how his citizens of heaven will live differently in this world, how even as we have our zip code here in Indianapolis, we are actually citizens of another country, and that changes the way we live among our neighbors and even those in authority over us. Then in the largest section of this sermon, all the way from chapter 5, verse 17, to chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus showed us how the law in the Old Testament applies to his followers and how it is that he actually fulfills the Old Testament law. The whole thing was about him in the first place. Far from just doing away with the first 39 books of the Bible, we actually fulfill them in a greater way than ever thought possible because they all pointed to Jesus. Now in verses 13 to the end, Jesus is winding this greatest sermon ever preached to a close. 
You know, along the way, we have seen some beautiful virtues that Jesus has held out. You can see why philosophers and theologians for centuries have been drawn to this teaching of Jesus because of its beauty. But Jesus is not after admiration. Now, like any good preacher, he is going to force us to choose. Decision time. Time to settle up. Time to choose what path you're on and ultimately decide how you will arrive on Judgment Day. This last section is really made up of four separate subsections. Each of them are a choice that Jesus is going to force us to make to clarify where we stand with him and ultimately what we will find on Judgment Day. We're going to look at the first two of those choices this morning and the next two next week. I'm just going to follow with me. If you look down, you'll see that Jesus is going to set before us two choices in each. It's a very common way of teaching and what we would call wisdom literature. He, he gives you uh, two choices that are opposites of each other with no middle ground in between to help clarify how you will choose to live in light of this. In 13 through 14, you will have to choose between two roads. In 15 through 20, you'll have to choose between Sorry, you'll have to choose between two trees. In 21 through 23, you'll choose between two confessions. And then in 24 through 28, you'll choose between two foundations. As you make those choices along the way, it'll clarify who is Jesus really and where do you stand in relation to him? And ultimately, it'll answer that question. How will you be met on that final day? we call Judgment Day. This morning, we're going to look at the first two of those, and we're going to answer two questions. In 13 and 14, we're going to answer the question, what road will you take to Judgment Day? And then in 15 through 20, we'll answer the question, who will you listen to on Judgment Day? As we study this, we're going to see that we need to live for and listen to Jesus alone to find eternal life on that final day. Let's begin by looking in 13 and 14. What road will you take to Judgment Day? Jesus lays before us two different paths, one hard, one easy. The, the hard one is in verse 14, and the easy one is in verse 13. Now, it's not clear if Jesus intends for us to think of a road with a gate at the front end that you walk in and then a road afterward, or a road that leads up to a gate. I'm inclined to think the second. But regardless, Jesus lays for us two roads that could not be more different from each other. One's very difficult, and one is very easy. Uh, we know a thing or two about bad roads here in Indianapolis, don't we? <laughs> I rolled into town in November uh, just in time for pothole season. Um, <laughs> And uh, it, it got really bad at one point. I, I read an Indie Star article where a uh, city official said, yeah, people need to be really careful. It's like a minefield out there. And I totally resonated with that. I mean, did you catch yourself, like, memorizing the pattern of the potholes on your way to and from your commute? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, There's some roads that were some, so bad, maybe you found yourself just taking a different route altogether to avoid some really bad sections. Uh, no one likes to drive on a bad road. No one likes to travel on a hard road. If that's true for us today with cars with suspension systems and shock absorbers and tires, 
how true is it for those traveling 2,000 years ago who had to carry with them everything they needed to survive, who had to pull their carts along behind them. Traveling was a difficult ordeal. That's what makes Jesus' image so striking. Jesus says, take the hard road, go through the narrow gate, He lays out for us first in verse 13 the easy road. He says that road is easy in the sense that it's plenty wide. You don't have to leave behind things to go on this road. You can take your cart and your family and everything with you. It's easy in the sense that it's big enough for lots of people to be on. We're told lots of people find the gate at the end of it. In other words, it's popular. Safety in numbers. It's well-traveled. There's enough people on it that the the dirt gets packed down hard and you have a nice, smooth surface. No ruts, no roots. It's easy going. Walking along that road is the most natural thing in the world. There's just one problem. At the end, there's a gate that's open wide that everyone is going through and Jesus tells us on the other end of that gate is destruction. But there's another road, this one he tells us about in verse 14. This one, it's narrow, it's restrictive. To get on it and stay on it, you're going to have to make some choices about some things you're going to have to leave behind. Not only that, it's, it's a lonely road, there's not so many people on it. Stretches, you'll not see a soul, feel like you're all by yourself. It's hard, it's pitted, it's rooted. You'll find yourself stumbling and tripping along the way. And at the end of it, there's a tiny little gate that you could just barely squeeze through. But whatever you might have carried that far, well, you'll have to leave that behind to get through. Yet Jesus says on the other end of that gate is life. The point of this binary choice metaphor that Jesus puts before us is that you have to choose what sort of life you're going to live, what direction your life is going to go. That's a really common image in Scripture, the idea of a a journey or a path that you're walking on to talk about your life. And Jesus says you have to choose between the hard life of following Jesus as his disciple and what comes naturally, living for yourself. He says living for yourself is the most natural thing in the world. It doesn't demand anything of you. You don't have to leave anything behind. You you get to keep your dreams, your comforts, anything you want. You'll find lots of people going along that road with you. It's a popular opinion. It has been for 2,000 years. It'll seem like you're headed the way that your dreams, and yet at the end, friend, you will find a rude awakening. Jesus says there is destruction. This way leads to disaster. We'll study more about what this means, but friend, it is what we call eternal damnation, hell. On the other hand, as a disciple, you're going to find the road hard. The Christian life is not easy. You've got to leave stuff behind along the way. You find yourself sacrificing your dreams, your time, your treasure. You find yourself losing friendships. You find yourself giving more and more of yourself as you go step by step along the way. And it's not easy. You trip and you fall and you wonder if you're even going to make it through at all. 
And yet at the end, there's this teeny, tiny, narrow gate. This final day of judgment, it looks like there's no way you'll make it through. And Jesus says, my disciples will find life on that day. Jesus is here showing us how we must make a choice whether we will follow him as disciples and trust him to give us eternal life on the last day or live for ourselves. A few years ago, a a book came out called Habits of the Heart. Robert Bella wrote it. It was examining religion in the United States, and it was looking at broad trends of how people think of belief and faith. And in it, uh, the author identified uh, a strand in our society pushing more and more towards an individual belief, just making up a religion kind of as you go. He identified it with uh, one woman who he interviewed named Sheila. She was a nurse who said that she practiced something called Sheila-ism. Sheila-ism was a religion of her own making. She said she doesn't go to church, she didn't subscribe to the Bible or anything like that. Instead, she listened to just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. If Sheilaism were multiplied out across all of our society, we would have hundreds of millions of different religions present among us. Now let's recognize that that sounds awfully good, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, just let people do whatever they want, think, believe whatever they want, just as long as it's not infringing upon me. Sometimes people say all roads lead to God. It seems like a tolerant, loving thing to say and believe. Yet Jesus won't allow us to go there, will he? He says all roads lead to God in one sense, just not all roads lead to him equally. All roads lead to him on judgment day. It's just a matter of how you arrive on that day, as a friend or as a foe. Jesus is forcing us to make a choice. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've been checking out Christianity. You've been on the fence about which road you would take. It seems natural and good to live a certain some way, but Jesus is presenting a very different understanding of life and eternity. Friend, at some point you will have to choose decisively one way or another. You have no guarantee how far the road of your life will extend on. At some point, you will come to the gate. The question is, will you take Jesus' warning seriously? Or will you decide to live under your own wisdom, your own philosophy? The message Jesus is teaching here is a loving warning as one who knows what's at the end of the road and can see the disaster we're walking toward. Remember, this is the man who himself walked the hard road. He himself experienced rejection, abandonment, all manner of hardships and trials. He he did every step of it going through the narrowest possible gate, obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of his death. Friend, he didn't do that just to make you feel bad or to be judgmental towards you. He did that because it's the only way to save a sinner that one day will have to give an account before the judge of the universe. Jesus did all that. He died on the cross 
as a substitute so that you can cross over from the wide way heading toward destruction toward the narrow way that leads to life. Friend, the only thing you have to do is believe him. All you got to do is admit that your life is going the wrong direction and say to Jesus, do for me what I could never do for myself. Put me on the way toward life and off the way toward death. For all of us who count ourselves as Christians and followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded that the road following Jesus is a hard one. Sometimes Christians live under the mistaken belief that because they are friends of God, they've been adopted into his family, that somehow life is going to be easy. That we go from one triumph mountaintop to the next, forgetting about all the valleys that God asks us to walk through. Friend, don't be discouraged when you find yourself tripped, knocked down, alone. That's normal. That's what it means to be a Christian. The good news is, though, that you are not asked to walk this road under your own strength. No, you are following the one that's provided everything you need for you. He knows precisely how much strength you have within you. He knows the challenges that lay ahead, and he provides just enough grace to get you to that final day, squeezing through that narrow door. Friend, don't Look toward the easy way with longing eyes. Don't start letting your fantasies run of what life might be like without the restrictions and constraints of being a disciple of Jesus. Friend, it may seem like comfort, it may seem like ease, but you know better. If you've truly walked with Jesus, you know there is no other way. What road will you take, friend? Jesus is forcing you to choose two paths both ending up in the same place, just under very different circumstances. How will you arrive on Judgment Day? We saw first in 13 and 14, we must decide what road will we take toward Judgment Day. But just as important as choosing what direction our life will go, we'll be deciding who it is we will listen to. That's what we see in verses 15 through 20. Who will you listen to on your way to Judgment Day? Jesus begins with another one of these stark warnings. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Israel had a history of trouble with false prophets. Uh, people that came claiming they were speaking from God when in fact they were not. It led them into idolatry. It excused sin. It ultimately led to disaster. These prophets were a form of judgment from God, and as the people listened to the prophets, their sins were multiplied. One such example, Jeremiah 6, verses 14 and 15, you can get the idea of what would happen. Speaking of the, these false prophets, he said, uh, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Much like Jeremiah, Jesus warns of the, the real threat of false teachers that will seek to destroy God's people from the inside out by teaching things that God has never, in fact, said. He uses a, a, an image of a wolf dressed up in 
sheep's clothing. Uh, it may be that Jesus is picking up on something from his day, like Aesop's fable. There's a, a story of a wolf that puts on sheep's clothing to get into the sheep pen, only to accidentally be grabbed by the shepherd and uh, killed as a dinner for the shepherd and his family. Maybe Jesus is picking up on that. It may just be he's taking a common uh, uh, a common scenario people know of, sheep and the threat of wolves, and just projecting this idea of a, a wolf that could disguise itself as a sheep. Regardless, Jesus is here warning that there's going to be false teachers that are good at disguising themselves, that they will creep in amongst God's people, and they will, through the teaching of things that God has never said, they will themselves actually draw people away and lead to their destruction. That leads to a pretty important question. How do you defend yourself against a disguised threat? Well, that's what Jesus shows us in 16 through 20. He gives us a, a spotting guide. How do you spot a false teacher? Now, notice with me verse 16 and verse 20 both begin and end with the same thing. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. That, that's a very common Jewish way of, uh, uh, of teaching. That it uses both the beginning and the end to say this is about the same thing and all these details fill in this one concept. So this is about how do you spot a false teacher? And his answer is, you look at what they produce. He uses the image of kind producing kind in verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Uh, sorry, that's uh, the image of health. Uh, verse 16 is what I was looking for. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn brushes and figs from thistles? Uh, in other words, you, you can tell the type of plant you're looking at by waiting for the fruit to show up. Uh, there's a Winnie the Pooh show that uh, Lillian likes watching. And uh, along the way, uh, Tigger gets into some hijinks. He goes and he mixes up all of Rabbit's seeds, which are so carefully organized. So Rabbit goes and he's planting his crop and he's tossing out seeds and he thinks he's planting pumpkins. But once the crop time comes around, he finds he has tomatoes and cabbages and, and all sorts of things springing up. Now, now, Rabbit didn't know the difference when they were seeds, but once they started producing, he was able to see what it was that was truly planted there. Jesus tells us that a false teacher will be known by the type of results they produce. That a false teacher produces certain types of fruit, and it can be differentiated from true teachers, which produce something of an entirely different kind. Verse 18, the verse we read just a second ago, uh, tells us about how kind produces kind. And this, uh, I'm sorry, health produces health. In this case, he says that a diseased tree will not produce good fruit. In other words, a, a, a plant will not give off the type of crop that you intend if it's unhealthy. You can spot whether a, a plant is beginning to decline if it stops producing or if the fruit that comes off of it is withered or diseased. Jesus is using these agricultural terms that people would have understood to say that you need to examine carefully the teaching and the results of false teachers. 
says the stakes are high. Any unhealthy tree gets chopped down and tossed into the fire. That's surely a reference to the final judgment, saying that these false teachers, the, the place they're ending up is not the place you want to join in. Now, a, a few words of caution need to be said before I set you all off on false teacher witch hunts. Um, a few things that Jesus has carefully woven into this picture and then just some general pastoral advice. First, realize that this is about false teachers. Verse 15 very specifically said, false prophets. This is not talking about something we are to do in, with everyone we come across or everyone in our small group even. Um, Jesus does say in other places like John 15 that we as believers, we're the, he's the vine, we're the branches, that we should bear good fruit. And if we don't see good fruit in each other's lives, we should ask questions over time. But he is not here saying, be warned about every person you come across, be examining their fruit intensely. No, this is here a warning about those who are hoping to speak for God, hoping to tell you what the Bible says. Preachers like me. First, this is about teachers. Second, the analogy he uses about fruit implies this is something you can only notice over time. And maybe tempting to hear someone and immediately make a snap judgment about false or true. I can tell you from having preached a few years, having taught even just a, a relatively small amount of time, it's, it's amazing how easy it is to misspeak or to say something that maybe you didn't intend to phrase a certain way. I don't think Jesus is here saying, go through with a fine-tooth comb every single thing a teacher teaches. He's saying over time, It'll be obvious what they're about. You are to have a long view to see the big picture of a teacher, of what they are teaching and the results of it. But third, the expectation here is that you will both be interested in and capable of spotting false teachers as a Christian. That with the proper diligence, with the proper teaching that you yourselves will be able to guard yourself from error, you are not powerless in this area. Now, if you are a young Christian, maybe you you've just are now getting a hold of the faith, or maybe in the past you've been burned by false teaching, I, I understand you might be particularly sensitive to this thought, that someone could seem to say something with lots of confidence, seem to be speaking from the Bible, and yet actually teach something completely contrary to the message of Jesus and the gospel. So let me give you four things that you can look at as you are examining someone's teaching over time that I think are a helpful way of uh, evaluating whether it's good or bad fruit. Uh, I got these four things from Kent Hughes. He uh, used to be pastor of the church that I served at uh, back in Wheaton, Illinois. I think they're very helpful. So four things that you need to be careful for. Watch for teaching that soft pedals or ignores the seriousness of sin and the call toward holiness. So many false teachers gain a following because they don't talk a lot about the cost of following Jesus and the narrowness of the road. They don't talk about the need for repentance, the heinousness of sin. They don't talk about the need to grow in godliness. It seems attractive and easy. Sugar-coated poison, though. Second, Beware of teaching that avoids talking about the final judgment. 
It's very, very disturbing to think about an eternity under the judgment of God. So I don't think it's any accident. One of the first things that tends to go once someone is no longer tethered to the scriptures is the doctrine of hell. It just brushes up against our sensibilities in such a way that one of the easiest ways you can spot someone that's drifted away from the scriptures is what do they think about the final judgment? Third, beware someone that doesn't talk much about depravity and the fallenness of man. It may sound nice to think that we're all good at heart, that we just need a little education and encouragement. Yet the scriptures are clear on this matter. And once someone starts totally coming from a different worldview about who we are in our relationship to God, it's a pretty good chance you're listening to a false teacher. And finally, most fundamentally, look out for anyone that avoids or expressly denies substitutionary atonement. You might say, what Jesus did on the cross, substituting his life for ours, bearing our sins, giving us his righteousness instead of our own. I wish I could say there weren't a lot of examples of false teaching here in the U.S. around us. Unfortunately, the number of churches that have failed at one or more of these points is legion. If you just take the time to watch the results, Friend, it is obvious that what Jesus says here is true. Bad trees produce bad fruit, and false teaching destroys churches. We should be sober as we look at the track record of uh, mainline Protestantism, liberal theology, not liberal politics, liberal theology. A whole generation of ministers lost their confidence in the Scriptures and lost their ability to say, Thus saith the Lord... They instead replace the demands for turning from sin and holiness and the need for repentance and acceptance of Christ. They replace that with social causes. It sounded really good. It used a lot of religious language, but friends, over time it's been obvious. That is a dead tree that produces fruit that will kill you. Those churches are emptying in record numbers. There was an article recently written looking at the data, and it said that there are 28 Easter's left for some formerly very large denominations. 28 Easter's before they will cease to exist. We need to beware of the very real possibility of drifting away from the solid teaching of the Bible and the gospel to so many other messages that go down easy but it will bring us right down with them. I say this with a bit of fear and trembling, knowing that I'm on the front end of what I hope to be a long preaching ministry. And I'm inviting you to examine the things I teach and the results of that teaching. If it ever were to come about where I were to start teaching something other than the gospel, where I started undermining the authority of Scripture, if I started seeming to be embarrassed by the things Scripture said, I hope our congregation would have the, the backbone and even the love to remove me as a preacher. The, the way our governance is set up, there is the accountability given to the congregation to not allow false teaching from this pulpit. And friend, if that failed, I, I, you don't hear pastors say this often, but leave the church. Do not stay under a false teacher. 
Now, I say this as someone who has seen the wounds of false teaching up close firsthand. I mentioned before that my family uh, made its way into the faith by way of uh, a cultic expression of Seventh-day Adventism. Now, not all Adventists are cults, but uh, the one we went in certainly was. And we found many of these markers to be true along the way. It was not the gospel of grace. It was not just the scriptures. And over time, the fruit of that has been born in very disastrous ways that I'm sad to, to even think about. Friends, the stakes are high. Jesus is warning you. Be careful who you listen to on the way to Judgment Day. Be careful who you listen to about Judgment Day. It'll be easy to find someone that will say something that's comfortable and that goes down smooth, but that will ultimately set you up for failure on that last day, friends. Instead, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He talks more about hell than anyone in the Bible. He warns so strongly against it because he came to break the power of sin and death and hell over sinners like us. Wouldn't you listen to him? The good news is that when you make it your ambition to listen to Jesus and what his word says, when you, you sit under good teaching again and again, that you will see results. You will see fruit, good fruit. Over time, your ability to discern what is right and what is true will come more naturally. Uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like people that have sat under good teaching for a lengthy, uh, lengthy stretch of time, they may not have all the apologetic arguments down. They may not know about every cult group. But it's like they've got a nose that can just kind of smell when something's not right. Uh, I've, I've experienced this even as a, a young preacher. Sometimes I, I've preached things that were less than perfectly on point. And uh, sometimes even some of the older believers that came around that never had been to seminary, they, they would just say, you know, maybe you need to study that passage again before you preach it next time. And, you know, <laughs> thank the Lord for that, honestly. Now, I mean, there's a, a form of having roast preacher for lunch that's not all that helpful, you know. <laughs> And yet I hope all of us would feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here and would encourage our preachers, if you do nothing else right, at least say the same thing that the Bible says, right? And over time, that's what Jesus uses to keep us on the narrow road, to keep us going forward, keep us from hopping on to the easy road, and one day to get us to squeeze through that narrow gate. Jesus is asking us to choose. What road will you take to Judgment Day? What, who will you listen to on your way there? Will you trust Jesus? Will you live for Him and listen to Him alone? Or will you go your own way? Find the final day to be a dark day indeed. There's a man named Charles Templeton who was a... Con uh, he was a peer of Billy Graham. So that early on, they were on the preaching circuit together. They were kind of like the up-and-coming preachers that everyone was talking about. They would, you want to go to the revival meetings when these two guys were preaching. But somewhere along the way, their roads started to diverge. Templeton started to get uh, 
started to have some doubts. He wanted to go to a seminary that was going to teach liberal theology, uh, didn't take the Bible literally, didn't think it was trustworthy in that way. And so he and Billy started to see things differently more and more. And, and at one point it came to a head and they had a, a, a kind of a, a meeting where they hashed it out. And they went back and forth and, and Templeton mentioned many of the things he was wrestling with and the things he was doubting. And Billy said that, you know, I, I, I just got to trust the Bible. And at that point, Templeton in his book records this. He said, but Billy, I protested. You cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important questions in life. Do it, and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. Billy responded. He said, uh, I don't know about anyone else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. He decided that he was going to preach the Bible as the word of God and continue on. Over time, Templeton graduated from that seminary, lost his faith. He became an atheist, wrote books about it. Near the end of his life, uh, Lee Strobel caught up with him and got an interview with him to ask him about this fascinating story. I mean, he started off with Billy Graham and ended up as an atheist agnostic. Strobel was asking him about this conversation and got an unexpected result. He said, uh, um, no, uh, talking about Jesus, he said, um, he's the most, kind of stammering, he said, in my view, he is the most important human being that's ever existed. He's an atheist talking at this point. Strobel says, that's when Templeton uttered the words that I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. At that point, Templeton broke down crying and changed the subject and wouldn't talk about it anymore. Friend, do not take for granted the decision you must make to take the narrow road following Jesus to eternity, to listen to him alone, to live for him alone. Two of the most important questions you will ever answer. What road will you take to Judgment Day? And who will you listen to about Judgment Day? Will you pray with me?